It's always good to be with you guys. We love Kingsburg. Our first trip up here, my wife Marilee and I were newlyweds. We were 14 and 15 years old or something like that. And uh, we came up here and just fell in love with the people of this place. And we've been up here for maybe 13 years ever since for different things. And River of Life is one of my favorite things to come do because I love talking to high school students. I've spent much of, of my life ministering to high school students. I believe in high school students, like I believe that you exist, and I believe in your potential, your extraordinary potential to do great things for God. And so I was very happy to be invited, and I'm excited to be here tonight. Uh, we came up yesterday. My son water skied for over four seconds on the river for the first time. Uh, he's 19, and no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's, he's little. And we, we had a great time. We've just had so much fun. This morning, we went to uh, one of the finest towns in America. We went to Fresno for a little while because I have always wanted to explore this place that I've seen on my phone when I was looking around the greater Central Valley environs. It's called uh, Forestiere Underground Gardens. Have you been to this? Raise your hand if you've been to this. Wow. We need to start a special cult because it was, I'm just going to tell you, it was an unequaled experience. It was unequaled in so many ways. So you go down Shaw until you're at the railroad tracks in kind of a scary, sketchy part, and you park just on the street, just right there on the street, and you walk past like a razor fence, and someone hands you a popsicle stick. I never understood that part. And then you take the popsicle stick to the next person and you give them money, more money than you would think to do something like this. So anyway, you give them the money and then you enter into the world of this Italian immigrant from uh, the last part of last century. That would be just a few years ago, let's say, you know, early 1900s. And he built this crazy house underground. You guys know about this thing? This is, the, this is a hidden treasure of the Central Valley. You've, you've got to get yourself to this. Uh, it'd be a perfect homeschool field trip. I mean, it is, it's perfect. And like whatever you feel about Fresno, this place just is Fresno. It's so underwhelming. And I just loved it. It was, it was I mean, this guy with a pick, a pickaxe, like a dirt pick, you know, for 40 years dug a house because it's colder underground. <laughs> and so instead of being 115 degrees, it was like a, a balmy 91 in, in, in the ground and he grew stuff. And yeah, it's amazing. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. And, and so uh, Fresno just went up a whole nother notch. It was already super high in my book. It went up another notch after the underground garden exploration by the Duncan family, a memory the kids will have nightmares about for a long time. So. Uh, we think a lot, though, don't we, about what's better than something else? We like to think about something being superior to something else. Like Fresno is, by verifiable fact, better than Barstow or Bakersfield or about 100 other towns like those. Uh, there's, there's things that you always say are better, and some are subjective and some are not. Uh, you say Kingsburg is better than Selma, for example. Uh, you raise in haters. So... Uh, you know, things, things like that. You, you think about one thing being superior to another thing. Sometimes it's based and rooted in your preferences. Coke is better than Pepsi. Dodgers are better than Giants. 
uh, Jordan is better than LeBron. That's a fact. And Larry Bird better than them both. That's right. And the Celtics are greater than the Lakers. And if you don't believe me, 17 is larger than 16. And if you don't know what that means, you don't know about the association. So uh, all, all these things, we, we compare all, all kinds of things all the time. We're always thinking about this thing is, is more important than this thing, or this thing is superior to this thing. Football is better than soccer. Uh, World Cup, though, is better than midseason baseball. So there's, there's all kinds of things that we compare, and we always think uh, about what is superior to another thing. And so when we think about what we're gonna eat, we think I wanna eat this instead of this, and I wanna, I wanna do this instead of this. We're bored, what should we do? This instead of this. And we think about all those things. Sometimes entertainment and food go together, and you say, I know, let's eat Tide Pods. And that's when I, I completely stopped understanding high school students. So, you know, those, those kind of things are all reminders that we all make these choices based on something that we prefer over something else. And I loved when Shay told me that you guys to chose to think about the theme of unequaled. I think that is an exceptional choice because it is so much a part of how we think. We always think about one thing being better than another thing or preferring something to something else. And I think it's something that is ingrained in us as creatures. I think we often uh, are driven by our preferences and it, it, sometimes our taste buds, bed, bids, French for taste buds is taste buds. And uh, sometimes it's just our experience. We, we like this and not that. And God understands that. And all throughout the Bible, he speaks of himself in relationship to other things. All throughout the Bible, you can find God talking about his betterness, his supremacy, his being unequal to something else. I mean, God's way in the garden was better than Adam's way. It was better to eat from the tree of life than from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so there was a, a choice set before those people at the very outset. And to listen to God was better than to not listen to him, to disobey him. But that's not what happened to the human race. And every one of us was plunged into sin forever. And that concept of choosing something less superior became something that marked our lives as human beings who are sinners by nature and by choice. And so God's people, who God revealed himself to, would constantly fall into worshiping things that were not God. They would follow after false gods. And so God would tell them and remind them that he is better, that he's superior, that he's unequaled. There's lots of passages you could think of in the Bible. Psalm 135, God says that he is greater than all other gods. That doesn't mean that there is more than one God, but he knew that his people would worship false gods and idols. And so he said that he was greater than anything else they could worship. Think of Isaiah 46, and it's a whole chapter in the Bible that makes fun of idolatry. And, and when God looks at those false idols that people would craft with their hands and make in their metal shops and then fall down on their face and worship, he would remind them of his superiority, of his betterness, of his excellence. God constantly presents himself as the one who is unrivaled in his excellence. 
And over and over again, as people would hear that refrain, they would fall into sin, they would worship something inferior, they would make the wrong choice, they would choose something less than God, and God would remind them that he is the best, that he is greater, that he has unrivaled supremacy. And so you get to the New Testament, and you see Jesus, God in human flesh, and he speaks to the people about who he is. And he tells them things that got him in extraordinary trouble with the religious leaders of his day. Things like, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, not that he's better than God and never saying that he's less than God, but always saying that he is the same as God, that he is equal to God. And this caused so much trouble for those religious leaders because they knew that they had always been taught by God himself that God was unrivaled in his supremacy, that God was the best, that no one compared to him. And so for Jesus to say that, to claim to be equal with God was a huge problem because God was first and God was everything and God demanded everything from his people. And now Jesus was putting himself on the same level as God. Well, in Jesus's ministry, he would demonstrate that, wouldn't he? He would raise people from the dead. He would calm a storm. He would heal a withered arm. He would make a blind person able to see. He would get rid of disease in Palestine. And in his short time of ministry, he was amazing. And he, it was obvious that he was more than just a prophet, more than just a, a special or wise teacher, but he was who he said he was. He was God, a very God that the one who he identified as his father, he was actually God himself. And now Jesus was on the scene and, and his popularity was surging and swelling and uh, the religious leaders and the Romans couldn't put up with this. And in a conspiracy, they plotted to kill Jesus and they were successful. They put him on the cross and they murdered him. But this was all according to the plan of God. God approved of his son's sacrifice and in three days rose him from the grave. And then Jesus appeared and proved that he was really God by rising himself from the dead. And so people saw him, not just a few people, not just his followers, hundreds of people saw Jesus resurrected. They heard him teach after they had seen him die on a cross. And this was amazing. Jesus' claim to be God and God's demand that he be first in everything came together in a new religion that was the culmination or the fulfillment of this ancient Jewish religion. And they called these people Christians, little Christs, because they followed after Jesus' teaching and they obeyed him as their Lord and they trusted him as their savior and he's been transforming lives ever since. And so if you want to think about unequal tonight, there's just one little passage of scripture I want to show you, since I just taught you the whole Bible from Genesis to the end almost. Uh, we'll just do one more. And if you have a Bible, open it to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Tell you a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Just a tiny bit. I want you to imagine those first followers of Jesus that I told you about a second ago. Those ones who were part of that group they called Christians. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. 
it's about 65 AD or so. It would have been one generation since Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. So in other words, this is the difference between today and when the Olympics were in LA or when Ronald Reagan had his second term. It was when your parents were kids, you know, back when dinosaurs were on the earth. So when you think about how close of a time that was though, from just a normal human perspective, it's just a, a generation ago, this church was in trouble. These Christians were in trouble because being a Jew in those days wasn't a problem in the Roman Empire. They could uh, do everything they needed to do. They had a, an arrangement worked out with this Roman superpower, but being a Christian was really, really hard. And to claim the name of Jesus was to be immediately the object of possible violence. Uh, their, their stuff was being taken away, their possessions confiscated. Uh, they were being kicked out of the normal parts of society. Their inability, the Christians' inability to say that Caesar was Lord, Caesar was master, Caesar was sovereign, they couldn't do it without blaspheming Jesus, caused them tremendous societal problems. If you think being a Christian at your school today is hard because you get made fun of because you're a goody two-shoes or because you go to church or because you don't cuss or whatever, uh, there's some kind of persecution maybe that you've experienced. Uh, multiply that on every level because the government was threatening to shut these people down, not just close their churches, but kill them. They were starting to be imprisoned for their faith. This was a scary time to be a follower of Jesus. And... Some of them, lots of them, used to be Jews. That was what they did. They went to the temple, they offered sacrifices, and they looked back at how they used to live, and they thought, why don't we go back? It's so much easier. We won't get in trouble. It's still the same God, isn't it? And some of them were going back. Some that didn't were getting imprisoned. Some were having their goods confiscated. Their families were in danger. And so more and more of them were starting to think, why don't we go back to the former way of life? Why don't we go back to how we used to worship God? What's the big deal? Is it really all about Jesus? Can't we just worship God? And then one day they get a letter, a letter from a pastor that they knew. And they probably met in a little church that met in a house. And word went out that, there was a letter that came from some important teacher that they knew about. And they went to the house to worship Jesus like they did each Lord's Day. And one of their leaders, a pastor, got up and he read this letter. It's the epistle to the Hebrews. A letter written in the context of Nero on the throne, hungry lions in the Colosseum, a scary place to be a Christian, but now... It was an opportunity for him to talk to these people who were thinking about walking away from Jesus. And if you've ever had that thought cross your mind, or if you've been a Christian long enough to see that experience where people you saw get baptized, people you grew up with in Sunday school, going to church and youth group, turn their back on Jesus, you understand how, how powerful and painful that can be. Well, that's what this letter was written about. And he doesn't just threaten them with punishment if they if they walk away from Christ though he does that some he doesn't just tell them that it, being a Christian is the intellectually satisfying thing to do and they shouldn't go back to Judaism because Christianity is the fulfillment of that though he does that too 
He doesn't just show them how the way of worship that God intended for Christians is superior to the way of worship that God intended for the Jewish people, though he does that too. The main thing that he does in this letter written to this huddled group of persecuted Christians is he shows them that Jesus is unequaled in his supremacy, that Jesus is better. And that's the key word in the book of Hebrews, better, better, better. 13 times that one word appears all over this book. And I just want to look at the opening verses of it with you and help you understand three ways why Jesus is unequaled in his supremacy. Just three ways to look at Jesus. And I hope that this will have the same effect that it had for those Christians that first received this letter all those years ago. This was intended to help them keep on following Jesus. And some of you are off to a great start. Some of you love Jesus and you've professed faith in Jesus and you're part of the church and you're growing in your faith. And, and I want you to keep on going. And God wants to show you why Jesus is so compelling and why you should never turn your back on him. Why you should never go back to how you used to live. So I think the timeliness of a letter like Hebrews is, is just as important today as it was back then. I know that none of you most likely are thinking of returning to Judaism like they were. But I think all of you know the, the pull of temptation's power. You all know how it was that you lived before you were a Christian. I also help, hope that this will help those of you who are trying to decide whether you should follow Jesus. You see other people who've made a commitment to follow Jesus that are sitting around you and you know that you're not the real thing. You know you don't really follow him. You know you're not a Christian, but you're thinking about it. Well, I hope that you'll hear in these just three little verses in Hebrews chapter one, why it is that Jesus is so worthy of your attention and why the comparisons that we constantly make in our lives about orange juice better than apple juice and uh, everything else that we love more than we love something else is put microscopic when it comes to the significance and power and, and importance of knowing that Jesus is better than every one and everything and that he is worthy of your lives and worthy of your worship and worthy of your devotion that there is nothing that this world can offer you that compares to the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus his unequaled greatness look at Hebrews 1 verse 1 it says all the way through verse 3 in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as the very word of God. And it begins in a way like no other letter in the New Testament. If you've ever read the Bible, you, you know that letters usually begin with like a, a dear so-and-so thing. But the New Testament version is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints uh, at Bithynia or whatever. Uh, Paul writing to the Ephesians. They usually have like an opening like a letter does. But you can picture this group of Christians persecuted, in danger, scared the door's going to get kicked down and Roman soldiers are going to drag them away. 
instead of hearing the normal letter, hearing this eloquent and beautiful sentence. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, through the prophets, at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's a very different kind of opening. And it tells us something right away about what God was doing and what God is doing. By saying in the past, he's talking about all the ways that God spoke in the past. And that's the entirety of the Bible in the first half. Think about all the ways God spoke in the Old Testament. He spoke to Adam in the cool of the garden. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to prophets. He spoke to to Joseph in a dream. He spoke to prophets through a still small voice sometimes. He spoke to Samuel in the middle of the night. God spoke so many different ways in the Old Testament, and all of those are examples of God's mercy. Sometimes God spoke through laws, like the book of Leviticus, telling people what they were supposed to do and what they weren't supposed to do. And sometimes he spoke through sermons, prophets that were preaching. But God spoke in many ways and and in many times, from all the way to the beginning of the Bible, all the way through the period of the kings, all the way through thousands of years of God speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking. And every single word that God ever spoke, all that stuff that maybe you think is boring in the Old Testament is actually evidence of God's great mercy. The fact that God spoke, that God revealed, that God said who he is, shows us that God cares about us. It shows us that we have a God who wants us to know that he exists. And that is awesome. That is unrivaled. If he were a God who didn't mind being concealed in darkness, if he was a God who didn't care about his creation, he wouldn't speak. But just the reminder that in the past, God spoke to the forefathers in all these different ways, priests and prophets and sages and singers and psalms and law and instruction and everything else that is the Bible up to this point is how God had spoken. He says, through prophets at many times and in many ways, sometimes really ordinary ways through a prophet condemning people's sins and sometimes in really bizarre ways like through Ezekiel giving himself a haircut and throwing it into the wind check that chapter out sometime when you're you're feeling like I don't know what you read in my Bible check out Ezekiel's haircut chapter so there's all these ways that God spoke and all of it is evidence that God is merciful that God is good that God cares about us But then this verse changes and says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, he said for thousands of years, God spoke and spoke and spoke and spoke and told his people what he desired and who he was and how he was greater and how they shouldn't worship idols and how they should come to him and how he's a holy God and how he's a good God and how he's a merciful God. And he spoke and he spoke and he spoke, but then a time came when he spoke in a different way. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. It's as if he's saying that God used to speak this way, but now he speaks this way. If I told you guys that I'm going to preach the rest of this sermon in Italian in honor of uh, Benefiso 
uh, Forasteri or whatever that dude's name was. He had a really weird first name. It wasn't Benifiso. But doesn't that sound Italian? Benifiso. I think it does. You would know that the rest of the sermon was going to be incomprehensible except to my Italian friends. And so I would say, Bajorno and... It's not delivery, it's di giorno and other Italian words I know. So if I did the rest of the sermon in Italian, you know he's speaking in Italian. Well, this verse says that God in the past spoke in prophet. He spoke prophet-wise. He spoke through prophets. And that's an amazing thing, and it's a good thing, and it's a wonderful thing. But then he says, now God has spoken to us sun-wise through the vehicle of his son. It's one thing for God to send a representative to tell you about who he is and what he desires. It's another thing for God to speak through a mediator like a, like a burning bush or even through a voice from heaven. That's a powerful thing. But for God to send his beloved son and speak to us and reveal himself to us through his son is amazing. It's the closest possible way to show how great God truly is. To know about God by way of his son is to understand that God has given us his very best. And so he tells us now, uh, like seven different lines here, but we'll sum it up by three things. Three visions of this unequaled supremacy of Jesus. What does it matter that God has spoken by his son? Well, it matters because of who the son is. And the first thing the son is, is he's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of the universe. Look at verse two. It says, whom he appointed heir of all things. We'll skip that line for later. And then this one, and through whom he also made the universe. And then the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And then this next line, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of the universe? The Lord of the universe. Well, it simply means two things, that he is the creator. It's why it says that he spoke to us by his son and we appointed the heir of all things who he made the universe, through whom he made the universe. You'll hear other preachers this summer talk to you through Colossians 1. It has the same kind of language that Jesus is the one who is present in creation that when God spoke this amazing world into existence with all its stone fruits and lilac bushes and rivers and uh, flora and fauna, Bengal tigers and gophers and black holes and galaxies uncountable, all of that was done through the vehicle of God's son, that Jesus Christ was able to speak this world into existence reminds us why he's the Lord of, uh, the word is cosmos, of everything, of all of creation, everything on earth and everything in heaven. Jesus is the one who made it. And the first reason he tells these people that they need to fix their eyes on him, which he'll say in chapter 12, the first reason why they should never turn their back on Jesus and why he is the one who is of unequaled supremacy, why speaking through the Son was of such a more intimate and incredible revelation of God is because he's the Lord of the universe. The Lord of the universe. You guys know who Stephen Hawking was? He was, Time Magazine said he was the most brilliant theoretical physicist the world has ever known. He's, in my 
understanding, the only theoretical physicist that I've ever known. And Stephen Hawking just recently died, which is sad because he did not acknowledge God. He was an ardent atheist. And one of the things he contributed actually helps me worship God in a bizarre way. And he was one of the leading scientists to think about how big the universe is. And I went to a public high school and a public university and, and I took astronomy class in college twice because I flunked it the first time. And it, but the thing is, though, I wasn't good at, at counting stars or whatever that class was about. I sat in the back. And I did enjoy, both times, hearing about things like the size of the galaxies, about the nature of a black hole, about how fast light travels in space. And though I'm not very sciencey, that stuff always provoked me to worship God because the, the vastness of the universe, of the solar system, the 100,000 million galaxies that Stephen Hawking says exist beyond our galaxy didn't threaten my faith. It only reminded me that's how great my God is, who spoke this whole world into existence. He is the one who, by his son, made the universe. And then that line in verse 3 at the end, he sustains all things by his powerful word. He didn't just make all the stuff that you see in the world. He also holds it all together. It's what he says in Colossians, that he upholds all things. And here he sustains all things, and it tells us how he does it. He does it by his powerful word, the same word that he made creation with. He upholds things. If Jesus wasn't supreme, if Jesus wasn't the center of everything, if Jesus wasn't God, this world wouldn't hold together. Everything about this world is so carefully made by our creator God that if we were just slightly closer to the sun, our planet would be uninhabitable. Inhibitable. French, Italian. What language am I speaking? If we were a little more off our axis, if the tilt was just a little bit different, there would be massive areas of the globe that would be covered in ice. Why is it the way that it is? Well, this planet is the way it is because... God upholds these things through his son Jesus by his powerful word. The same God who created the world sustains the world. And so the first reason for his unequaled superiority is he is the Lord of the universe. And if you're ever tempted to turn your back on God, if you're ever tempted to follow after your sin and go your own way, I will remind you that you will never ever, ever be able to escape from God's first witness. You may be able to walk away from church and not listen to sermons anymore and not be around any of those annoying Christians anymore, but there will always be bugs and trees and grass and a blue sky and a vast ocean and stars at night. And every one of them is screaming at the top of their lungs and testifying to the fact that there is a God who made this world and who made you. There's 27 bones in your hand. Unless you got hurt in a game earlier, then you maybe have 28 because one broken half. I mean, you, 
Your eardrum is so weird. Have you ever gone to the doctor and see the picture of your ear? There's all kinds of stuff. There's a hammer in there. There's a drum in there. There's all kinds of stuff in there to make you hear. I mean, you cannot escape this inescapable witness of God's wisdom and power and creativity and upholding of all things. Jesus is unrivaled in his superiority because he's the Lord of the universe. Second reason out of three, we're doing good, you guys. The second reason is the incarnate God. Jesus is the incarnate God. Back to verse two, it says he's the heir of all things and he made the universe, that phrase, heir of all things, is important. And then in verse 3, it says the Son, he's the one who's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. These are amazing little phrases that all are seeking to remind us that Jesus is God of very God. That when you look at Jesus you look at God. When you understand Jesus, you understand God. When Jesus explains who he is, he's explaining who God is. You remember in those Bible stories you used to hear in Sunday school about where God's glory was. You remember that? Where was God's glory in the Old Testament? Do you remember any spots? You could talk during this part. Speak to me. Any place you see God's glory in the Old Testament. Anybody remember a Bible story from a kid? As a kid? Yeah, what do you think? Boom. Look, see, he got the right answer. Is that what you were going to say? Good work. He got it first. Mount Sinai. That's another place. The pillar in the wilderness. And then Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to his people. Where else? There was a really special place where God's glory would dwell. Where else? The Ark of the Covenant. Good. You guys are smart, Bible-taught people, Kingsburgians, brilliant geniuses, Bible scholars. You all get a free seminary degree tonight. You could pick it up from Pastor Scott, okay? Pastor Scott, wave your hand. There you go. So here's the thing. God's glory was on Mount Sinai. God's glory was, was in the wilderness with the people. And then it was in this kind of portable temple called a tabernacle. And inside that tabernacle is what this brother said. It's, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It was this fancy piece of furniture, a big box that had a seraphim on the top of it. And they would sprinkle blood on it once a year as part of the Day of Atonement. This was a place that God's holiness was taken so seriously and God's glory was there. And if you don't believe me, ask a dude named Uzzah who touched it and died. And so they took it very seriously because this was the place where God's glory inhabited. The tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the pillar, Mount Sinai, all these were reminders that God is glorious, that God is present, that God is powerful. And then you hear the opening words of the Gospel of John that says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us and the word is tabernacled. It's a reminder that Jesus is the tabernacle of God, that Jesus is an even greater display of God's glory than all those things that prefigured. The furniture in the tabernacle has got nothing on the Son of God. 
He's the one who's the radiance of God's glory. In other words, this bright, shining glory of God is best understood by looking upon the face of Jesus in his holiness, in his kindness, in his teaching, in his power. Jesus reflects and radiates the glory of God himself. So much so that he is the heir of all things. In other words, everything in this world is made for him and belongs to him. He gets it all in the end. The one who created it is the one who will inherit it. And then he is the one who is also known as the exact representation of his nature. So you can never fall for any of the schemes or cults that try to say that Jesus is less than God or secularists who say Jesus was a wise teacher like Buddha or somebody else. No, no, no. The Bible never leaves room for that. And these people getting this letter thinking, maybe I'll go back to my former way of life, are fought head on with this material because they're reminded they can't go back to the way things were. They can't go back to how they used to live. They have to keep following after Jesus because Jesus is not only the Lord of the universe, he is the incarnate God himself. He is the exact representation of his nature. When you buy a car, and I know some of you are just, Godspeed, please, Heavenly Father, give me a car. It is your, it's the thing in your life that you're waiting for, a car. How many of you are waiting for a car? Raise your hand. I'm giving one away tonight. I'm kidding, I'm not, I'm not. But Pastor Scott is, you talk to him, he's got an extra car, I think, maybe. When you buy a car, you have to sign a bunch of paperwork. And during that process, they try to cheat you out of extra money. Heads up, just helping you older to younger. So at the end of it, you sign a whole bunch of times. And you borrow a pen and you sign and you sign and you sign. In the ancient world, you didn't sign. If you were an important person and you were making a deal that was an important deal, you would have a special ring and you would press that ring into wax and it was a signet, and your little ring made a special mark, sometimes with a letter on it, sometimes a letter and a symbol, and you would press that into this wax, and you would seal the deal with that. And that wax little impression would match that thing on your ring. That's the same exact word he uses here. You see, Jesus is an exact match. He is the impression in every way of God. When you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. And this is why it is such a fool's errand to ever try to find God apart from Jesus. To have those people who say, you know, I'm just looking for God uh, all around. You know, I think I could find him in lots of different religions. No, no, no. Their, their only way to find the true God is through the exact representation of God, Jesus Christ, his son. He is the one who is the imprint of God. He is the one who is there in creation and he is the incarnate God himself. It's why after in the book of John, when he says that he tabernacled among us a chapter later, Jesus looks at his opponents and says, destroy this temple in three days. And they thought he was talking about a building. He was talking about himself because he was a greater temple than the actual physical temple because he is the greatest display of the glory of God. For God to speak for all those thousands of years through prophets was a mercy. But for you to be able to hear 
the Bible's testimony about Jesus himself, there is nothing else, high school students, there's nothing else out there for you that is a greater experience of God than Jesus. Maybe you felt like you can't hear from God at times in your life. Maybe you faced a difficult trial. You got a bad diagnosis. Your friend got killed in an accident. Your, uh, your, your parents split up. Whatever, the hardest thing you've ever been through. And you felt like, God's not talking to me. I understand that. I'm sympathetic with that. But I would encourage you, if you want to hear from God, you need to listen to Jesus. You open your Bible and know that this is the testimony of God about his son. And when you learn about Jesus, when you see Jesus, when you hear the voice of Jesus in his word, you are encountering God himself. Third and finally, he's not only the Lord of the universe showing us that his supremacy is unrivaled. He's the incarnate God, but finally he's the priestly king. Just look at verse three. It says, after he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The book of Hebrews will go on to explain these two things, that Jesus is a greater priest than all those priests in the Old Testament and a greater king. Here's what we need to understand tonight if we understand his unrivaled supremacy. The reason we need a priest, the reason we need a priest is we need a go-between between us and God. And in the Old Testament, it was all these human guys who could go in once a year with lots of limitations and lots of rules. But in the coming of Jesus, we have a high priest and a kingly one at that who is the inheritor of all things and the one who provided purification for sins because his death on the cross was the sacrifice that God approved of. And then Jesus is the one who would sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, taking the place of kingly supremacy to show us that he is the son of God, the lamb of God who took away the sins and the one who is the perfect impression of God, the perfect advocate for us, the priest that we as sinners desperately need. Friends, there is so much in this world that will draw your attention and that will summon you to follow. But I'm telling you tonight, hear the word of God. Jesus Christ is unrivaled in his superiority. One more Bible story, I'll close with it. Matthew 17 is that chapter you all remember. It's, it's that scene where Jesus takes three of his disciples up on to that mountain and they have some time in prayer. It gets interrupted by this amazing moment of God showing his glory. It's Peter, it's James, and it's John, and it's Jesus. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, shows up two other characters. Super famous, super important people in the Bible, Moses and Elijah. Amazing. Peter is blown away by this whole experience. The glory of God descends down onto Jesus and, and these two other guys and, and their faces are, are glowing. And, and for these fishermen, followers of Jesus, Jewish guys, this was the ultimate. This was the greatest preacher that Israel had ever known in Moses. 
And this is the greatest prophet, the one who really started it all as far as prophets go in Elijah. This is the moment that they think it's all coming together now. Our teacher Jesus is here. These two big deals are here. Let's bring it all in. Let's, let's let God reign over this world. He can destroy all the evildoers. This is the end times. And Peter volunteers to do construction. He's like, I will build three booths, one for Moses, one for Jesus, and one for Elijah. And Peter thinks it's a good idea. These guys are important guys. I'm going to build them fancy booths and the whole world can come and worship God here. And God thinks this is a terrible idea. So much so that from heaven, he interrupts this scene. And he shuts it down with his words. And do you know what he said to Peter? He said, this is my son. Pointing at Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, three houses for three prophets is inappropriate because Jesus is more than Moses. Jesus is more than Elijah. Both men who spoke on behalf of the real God, both men who spoke the word of God to the people of God, but none of them compares with Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. Friends, if you're compelled by anything else, whether it's sin, a relationship, trying to be accepted at school, trying to make some money to get out of the life that you have, whatever it is that appeals to you, I'm asking you tonight to give those desires up and first and foremost, focus your life on Jesus because of his unequaled supremacy. Like God said, listen to him because nobody else compares. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these young people. And I ask that you would reveal your son to them as only you can. Awaken their eyes of their heart to see the glory of you in your son. Show them your matchlessness. Show them that Jesus is the one who creates and sustains, that he's God of very God, and that he's the only way to get to God, and that he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen.